If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's podcast, you'll hear an interview with the historian Alexander Watson about a crucial battle of the First World War. Alexander's latest book, The Fortress, tells the story of how a siege at an Austro-Hungarian fortress in Poland in 1914 delayed a Russian advance against all the odds. Our editor, Rob Attar, spoke to him to find out more. First of all, Alexander, just to get some of the basics out of the way, where exactly is the fortress and where was it then in terms of country or territory it was in? So the fortress, the place where the fortress was, is a city called Przemysl which is in southeastern Poland, right on the border with Ukraine. Where the fortress was in 1914 was in a province called Galicia, which stretched across what today is southern Poland and into modern western Ukraine. And it was slap bang in the middle of that province, in the last high ground before the Russian border. And that was, at that point then, within the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which and it was doesn't exist yeah, anymore. It was, it was in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, ruled by the Habsburgs. When was the fortress constructed and what did it actually look like? So the fortress started to be built in the late 1870s at a time of tension with Russia. There had been plans to build a fortification in Przemysl and ideas, ambitions, um, even before that. And there had been some early fortifications built during the Crimean War, but 
the fortress as it was in 1914 began to be built in the 1870s uh, and it continued to be developed up until the first years of the 20th century. What a 19th century fortress looked like and what the fortress of Chemish looked like was a city surrounded by a ring of fortifications. So the fortress of Chemish had three lines of fortifications. It had an inner line, um, which wasn't strong at all, a second line of scattered artillery batteries, and then the main line, the perimeter, was the only one that really counted if this fortress came under attack. And that had 35 forts of varying sizes and shapes um, built around a 48-kilometre circumference, uh, a perimeter of 48 kilometres. Those forts weren't joined together in the first instance. They were only joined at the start of the war um, by trenches. And the reasons for that were partly because the Habsburg Empire was very short of money, uh, and it was also because the garrison and the fortress commander panicked at the start of August 1914 when the fortress of Liège in Belgium fell by German troops infiltrating between its forts, and they thought, right, we have to have a continuous line. At the same time, though, a fortress was much more than that hard outer layer. It was an organism almost, a, a military organism interconnected with the city. And that's, of course, part of what my book is about, the interconnections of soldiers and civilians. There were supply routes, there were telegraph lines, there were telephone lines going into the city. Within the city of Chemish itself, there were barracks, there were exercise grounds, there were headquarters, there was a swimming school, there was an officer's club. Um, the whole city was developed and changed and shaped by the Habsburg military. So the outer hard defensive perimeter and the soft city and its infrastructure within it were very much of one. Both needed each other to function and for, for defence. And so really, this is huge, isn't it? I mean, when you think of a fortress, you might think of it like a medieval castle, but this is an entire fortified city we're talking about here. Yeah, this is off the scale of a medieval castle. Shemish was a city with 50,000 people in it. Uh, the garrison was, during the war, 130,000 men. Um, as I said, the perimeter had a circumference of 48 kilometres, so this was a very, very big place. Now, the fortress story really comes into its own during the First World War. So when that breaks out in the summer of 1914, who are the opposing forces on the Eastern Front? The main opposing forces were the Austro-Hungarian army, the Habsburg army in the south, uh, the Russian army fighting against it, and then in the north, the German army, allies of the Habsburgs. But the Germans put a very small contingent in the east. Most of the German army heads westward to try and defeat the French within six weeks. That's the German army's brief. So there's only a very light scattering of German troops in the north of the eastern front. The bulk of the Russian army is up against the Habsburgs, and it's the Habsburg army that bears the brunt of that war in the east during those critical weeks. And am I right to say that the fortress was never really intended in a war against Russia to be coming under fire so early on? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true, especially in the last decade or so of peace, where the Habsburg high command really begins to think of war above all as a matter of manoeuvre. Uh, it stops investing in the fortress. It regards rightly the fortifications as obsolete and it sees the fortress as a kind of glorified warehouse where the field army can store its kit and then sally out to defeat the Russians in a great offensive. That's really what it sees the fortress as being for. But as your, your book explains, that's, that's not what happens. So what goes wrong for Austro-Hungary that means the fortress ends up in the front line? Well, 
Firstly, Austria-Hungary made a huge mistake in initiating this war. The Austro-Hungarian army at full mobilisation is less than half the strength of the Russian army. And on top of that, the leadership makes key mistakes. It's led by a man named General Franz Konrad von Hutzendorf, uh, and he makes two key errors. The first is he sends too many soldiers down to Serbia, which means that his already weak army is even weaker. Uh, and secondly, those troops that he does send to the right theatre, uh, that he does send to the theatre against Russia, um, he disembarks too soon. So as a result, these troops have to march up to the Russian border and when they start fighting, they're already exhausted. What then happens is the Russians gain very quickly an overwhelming advantage in the east of Galicia, in the east of the battle zone, around what today is the city of Lviv in Ukraine. They smash the Habsburg army in a couple of battles at the turn of August, September 1914. And the Habsburg army comes fleeing back in disorder. My book starts on a tower um, in the centre of town, as if you were, were looking down at the road to the east. And what anybody on in the middle of September would have seen on this tower in, in Przemysl was these roads full of exhausted decimated regiments and horses limping towards the city. Um, They'd suffered horrendous casualties. They were diseased because the Russians brought cholera with them into the province. Um, and it was a moment where it looked like the Habsburg army was going to collapse and with it the empire. So at this point, the fortress essentially does come onto the front line of the battle between the two, the two big armies. What kind of people were actually garrisoning the fortress at this point? The fortress was garrisoned by the oldest soldiers in the Habsburg army. Um, all continental armies worked on roughly similar systems of conscription where every male between the ages of roughly 20 and 40, 42, something like that, uh, was eligible for a call-up. And the fortress was garrisoned by the oldest class of soldiers in the Habsburg army, so men aged between 37 and 42 years old. These men were very... Uh, they'd been ripped out of civilian life just a couple of weeks before the siege begins, well, just a month before the siege begins. And uh, their training is a good decade, sometimes a decade and a half in the past. That's, that's one key characteristic of these men there. They're old soldiers, rather they're old civilians hurriedly turned into soldiers and very badly equipped too. The other major characteristic of them is um, their multi-ethnicity. The Habsburg army was an incredibly large and diverse place, stretched right across Central Europe. It had 11 official languages, uh, and this fortress was garrisoned. This, this major defence of the empire was garrisoned by Austrian-Germans, Hungarians, Romanians, Slovaks, Slovenes, Italians, Poles, Ukrainians, Czechs, um, all sorts of men from Central Europe, all facing the world's largest army, the Russian army. Um, and the units themselves were multi-ethnic as well. So I focused down on one of these old units. They were called Landsturm units, um, which was raised in Galicia, near, near the fortress. Uh, its men were Polish, Ukrainian, Orthodox Jews. Um, but the officers were Austrian Germans and Czechs. So you have this huge divide. The Austrians come from about 500 kilometres away from where their soldiers come from, and they're completely different. It's a bit like these men have dropped down from Mars. You have these old, pious peasants, some of them illiterate, and then these officers of different language groups coming from the most developed parts of the 
empire. They're not generally professional officers. Um, very few of them are. Most of them are reservists. They're architects. They're civil servants. They're, God help us, academics. Suddenly brought in in order to defend Franz Josef, the Emperor Franz Josef's uh, realm. They're about the worst possible people that you would want to be led by in this desperate situation. And that multi-ethnicity of, of the troops, that must have posed problems, partly, I guess, language issues, but also, you know, did all these people necessarily get on very well with each other? So the Hatsug army had a lot of experience of managing uh, multi-ethnic units. Um, and it's worth bearing in mind, of course, that these, I've called them Poles, Ukrainians, but of course, many of them would have spoken Polish and Ukrainian. Um, so you do get Plenty of people in this part of the world who speak more than one language. Additionally, the officers were obliged to speak their men's languages too, uh, which kind of helped. And the men were put through a crash course of military German. So every soldier in the Habsburg army had to learn 80 words of German or Hungarian, which wasn't going to be enough for a fascinating conversation, but it was going to be enough to be able to change an artillery barrel or um, reload uh, artillery or understand basic commands. The problem, of course, was that those rules, the, the idea that officers should should speak the language of their men, above all applied to the field units, the units that were around in peacetime. These were scratch-built units raised at the start of the war. And as a result, all of this goes out the window. So you have some officers who can manage a bit of pidgin Polish. Often they use Jews who speak Yiddish um, from the area to help translate from German to Polish or Ukrainian. The army has its own language called Army Slavic, which combines German words with Polish grammar. So you have these weird kind of ghetto rounds. But ultimately, the honest answer is there's a huge amount of confusion. And you can see that whenever this army goes into battle, and especially whenever the garrison goes into battle. In terms of people not getting on, that's also true. Especially there's a lot of suspicion by the high command and by the fortress command of Ukrainian speakers who are believed to be pro-Russian. And that causes a lot of problems. It causes a lot of confusion. And on top of that, of course, within the ranks itself, there's all these petty jealousies between Germans and Czechs, between Poles and, and Ukrainians. There's anti-Semitism as well. So yes, this is a very loud, squabbly kind of army without any doubt whatsoever. But it works. I mean, yeah, that, that's the incredible thing. So initially, there's this great attack by the Russian against a fortress. And ultimately, as your, as your book shows, the fortress manages to survive. I mean, these men, as you say, they're old, they're not necessarily the right people to be fighting, multilingual. How do they manage to fend off the Russian army at this point? Well, there's a big, big battle in October where the Russians attempt to storm the fortress. This is one of the high points of the military action. Um, to a large extent, it's luck. The Russians haven't developed siege artillery, both the Austro-Hungarian army and the Germans have before the First World War, but the Russians haven't. And as a result, they don't have guns large enough to be able to crack the concrete and the brick of these fortifications that, that Shemish has around it. Um, the fortifications are obsolete, but nonetheless, the Russians aren't able to actually physically destroy them. Um, Instead, they launch an artillery assault, which nearly cracks the garrison psychologically. Um, And what happens is uh, the garrison manages to hold on by virtue of its defences, just about staying intact. And the field army, given enough time to recover by the garrison's resistance, comes to its rescue just at the very last minute, the split second where where, where the battle is in the balance. After... This battle, the state of warfare, then moves on to a siege warfare. But how important was it, do you think, for the the Eastern Front and the First World War in general 
that the Austro-Hungarians hang on at that initial battle. Well, it was crucial. So the way that the fighting plays out is that the, the war breaks out, of course, at the end of July, early August 1914. Um, the fortress is encircled in mid-September after the Habsburg field army has been defeated um, to its east. And then there's this big battle at the start of October. That then forces the Russians to withdraw a bit, but they then lap round and take and, and, and resume the encirclement in November. That key period of September, though, is utterly critical, where the fortress resists and where the fortress manages to beat off this huge Russian attack, largely because the field army has been destroyed, discipline has uh, has collapsed, um, its command to a great degree has collapsed so badly that it's taken back 120 kilometres behind the fortress in order to recover. There's enough cannon fodder, there's enough men to be able to refill its ranks, but it desperately needs a couple of weeks of rest and respite to resume order to refill those ranks before it can go back into the fighting. Otherwise, the risk is of total and utter collapse. And the fortress supplies that just at this key point right at the start of the war. If it hadn't done so, I think we would have seen a very, very quick Habsburg defeat and the domination, the Russian domination of East Central Europe 25 years before it actually happened. This was known at the time, wasn't it? I mean, the fortress was very celebrated in Austro-Hungary after after the initial battle. Hugely, yes. These very, very reluctant middle-aged soldiers come to be celebrated as heroes right across the empire. The Habsburg Empire is very, very, very short of victories. It's got plenty of journalists, have plenty of uh, heroism to talk about, but they really need some victories. And the defence of Przemysl supplies that at last. And it gives the fortress absolutely huge symbolic power in terms of its symbolism, in terms of the ferocity of the fighting. This is this is this is the Stalingrad of the First World War in terms of the the importance both for first Austria-Hungary and then also Russia. The symbolic importance, Przemysl equates to Stalingrad without without any question. Now, as then the book goes on to detail, the fortress is encircled, surrounded, deep within Russian territory for several months. Was that entirely necessary on the Austro-Hungarian side? Could they have withdrawn these men before the siege started? Did they need to hold on to it? So in the first case, in September, October, it's utterly critical to hold on to it without any question. When the Russians are able to again uh, gain the upper hand and re-encircle the fortress at the start of November, no, absolutely not. It's not crucial at all. Um, In military terms, the sensible thing would have been for the chief of the general staff, Konrad von Hützendorf, to have evacuated the fortress, to have abandoned it. There was no easy possibility that uh, another relief was going to happen. That seemed very, very unlikely. And unlike in September, when the field army had gone back in disarray, in November, the field army is able to retreat in an ordered way. So it's not necessary to hold on to these obsolete fortifications. The problem that Conrad has, though, is that he's already suffered a lot of disasters. He's already uh, made a huge number of errors. The emperor is considering replacing him. And Przemysl has a huge amount of symbolic importance for the entire empire. So it's not difficult for him to see that if he withdraws, if he abandons the fortress, there's going to be a huge public outcry and his head will roll. 
There's another interesting aspect to this, which is that Conrad is in love with a woman half of his age, and she's married, and it's incredibly difficult to get a divorce in Habsburg, Austria. And what he comes to believe, he's obsessed with her, and what he comes to believe is that if he can hold on to the fortress, if he can win a great victory, then he will get the emperor's permission to override the Austrian divorce laws and marry this love of his life. That's his hope. And as a result, it's obscene, but as a result, he sacrifices these 130,000 Habsburg soldiers. He abandons them in the fortress and says, hold on, do what you can, we'll be back at some point, dot, dot, dot. And of course, the field army never returns. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. All of the fortifications around the city and the bridges and military installations within it are blown up in this vast Armageddon-style sort of Wagnerian exercise. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And so the fortress clings on in the end, I think, to March 1915. In those months between November and March, what was life actually like for those living within its walls? So that was one reason why I wanted to write this book. The world of 1914 was in some ways a bit like our own. There'd been peace for a long time. Um, War had become to some degree unimaginable. Of course, people saw the storm clouds gather, but no one really believed that after a half century of peace, war could happen. And then also, this was a world of massive interconnectivity, massive technological change, massive mobility. Um, It was time of telegraph and even telephone. It was time of automobiles, of aerial flight. It was a time where there's mass migration. In some ways, freedom of movement was greater than it is today. This was a very mobile world, a very open world, a very border-free world, a world in which communications were happening at speeds that hadn't been seen before in previous centuries. 
And what the encirclement of Shemesh does, and the war does, but especially the encirclement, is it cuts that very, very abruptly. And that fascinated me, how you go from a place rather like our own, where you can talk to anyone, where you can move freely, to a place where you are entirely cut off from the rest of the world. That's fascinating, the mentalities that go with it. And the city reacts, the city and the garrison react to that in a number of different ways. Um, on one hand, at first, especially there's an attempt to solidarise. There are all sorts of community efforts made by citizens to support each other, to support the garrison in their defence. Um, there's charity. Of course, one of the major worries is of food, food running short. And so um, kitchens are set up for the poor. There's all sorts of charitable efforts made to help people in distress. But very quickly, that begins to fragment. Paranoia, rumour, racism, ethnic hatred, especially against Jews who are seen as profiteers. It should be said that Jews had a role in the city, as in much of this area before the First World War, as traders, as entrepreneurs. So it's possible during the war that they were good contacts to get stuff in difficult circumstances. But that's interpreted by the Christian population as profiteering and anti-Semitism surges during the siege. There's all sorts of prejudice as well against Ukrainians. There's all sorts of food fantasies and rumours of betrayal betrayal and treachery and violence. So the city becomes a very nasty, poisonous place in this time. Coming on to March 1915, what eventually leads to the fall of the fortress? Food, or rather a lack of food. So in, in November 1914, there's 131 soldiers and 21,000 horses trapped in the fortress. Uh, and the garrison survives by the end by eating the horses. Horse sausage, horse offal goes into sausage. Horse meat is the mainstay of the rations. Everything that isn't horse tastes of horse because it's all fried in horse fat. And, and by the end of the siege, they're even grinding up horse bones and putting them in flour in order to stretch out the bread just that bit, bit longer. And by the end of March, well, by the middle of March, it becomes clear that the field army is not going to come. The field army has sacrificed around 600,000 soldiers trying to get across the Carpathian mountains in winter in order to relieve the fortress and it just hasn't been able to do it. The mountains are too high, the snow too thick, the Russians too strong and by the middle of March it's realised that the fortress has no food left and a decision is made that, the, that it's going to have to capitulate. But, but before it capitulates there's this almost insane moment where rather than just surrendering they actually charge out to try and break encirclement, but in the wrong direction? It's That's right. So there's lots of uh, to and fro between Conrad, the, the, the head of the army, the chief of the Austrian general staff, and the fortress commander, who's a man named Hermann von Truxmanek. And they decide that one last attack by this starving garrison of, of middle-aged men is necessary before capitulation. Of course, for the officers and soldiers, Kuzmek presents this as a bona fide attempt to break the encirclement, to fight their way in a heroic fashion at the Habsburg army. Um, in practice, though, the idea is all about honour. That's, that's how it's couched in. But one can be a bit more cynical than that and say, really, it's about publicity. It goes back to this prestige that we were talking about earlier. Um, it's to save Kuzmek's and Conrad's reputation. The fortress already has um, immense prestige for having defended itself and saved the field army and the empire in October 1914. And the idea is that one last attack 
one final heroic attack against the Russians will cement that legend of Pshemish's heroes for all time um, and give the papers and journalists like yourself a good story to run um, to disguise the fact that 130,000 people have been helplessly sacrificed in this vanity project of Conrad's. And they go eastwards. As you say, they go eastwards. The, the most direct way to the field army is southwest. But they head eastwards, um, not towards Vienna, not towards the Hats of Field Army, but towards Kiev, towards Moscow. And the reasons for that are, firstly, that Kuzmanek expects there to be least resistance from the Russians there. Secondly, that that's pretty much the only direction that the garrison is capable of going in, because elsewhere around the fortress perimeter, there is marsh and there are hills, and these men are too weak to go over anything other than level ground, and that's what there is in the east. So that's that's why they head there. And of course, Kuzmanek knows that there's not a hope in hell of them ever reaching the field army anyway. This is all for show. This is a very, very bloody theatre, and that's why they head eastwards. But it's the crowning point of what is a pretty obscene story of command. Predictably, that fails and the, the fortress has to, to surrender. What, what happens to the soldiers within the fortress after the fortress has fallen? Well, firstly, with the, with the surrender itself ends not in a whimper, but in a huge bang. The commander of the garrison, Kuzmanek, decides that um, there, there are going to be two ingredients to the surrender. Firstly, there's going to be this heroic attack before it, vain but legendary. And secondly, the idea is to leave the Russians nothing. And on the night of 21st of March, the artillery around the fortress fires off all its ammunition. And then in the early morning, all of the fortifications around the city and the bridges and military installations within it are blown up in this vast Armageddon-style sort of Wagnerian exercise. And with the defences destroyed, with the, with, with the armaments of the fortress destroyed, all that's left are really these old broken men and they are brought into Russian captivity where they remain until, in some cases, if they're lucky, 1917. In other cases, some men don't get back until 1920. They suffer conditions which are similar to, in some cases, to, to the gulags of, that Stalin set up a few decades afterwards. So many of them put in um, what today is Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan, terribly cold winters, hugely hot summers, but on uh, very, very tough physical work. Um, the worst place that prisoners of Pshemish end up in is in the Tsar's own death railway in Archangel, where they are forced to dig through permafrost to create a railway to Murmansk so that supplies left by British soldiers in Murmansk can be brought down into the centre of the Russian Empire and then brought to the army. Um, and the death tolls among these prisoners are utterly, utterly huge. And then what happens to the fortress itself under, what's that like under Russian occupation? One of the reasons why this story is important is because the resistance of the fortress shapes the First World War, it shapes the future of East Central Europe. If it hadn't held, as I've said, East Central Europe, I think, would have come under Russian control much earlier. But it's also important for a second reason. It's also important because what happens in 1914 looks forward to the even greater disasters that befell this region under the totalitarian dictatorships just a couple of decades later. And we see that already during the occupation, and indeed before the occupation. The Russian army is 
fiercely nationalistic and it's fiercely anti-Semitic. And in the part of East Central Europe that Przemysl lies in, that the fortress lies in, the leadership of the army wants to change this area. As I said, today it's in western Ukraine, southern Poland. It wants to change it into what the Tsar calls a great Russia to the Carpathians. It wants to change it into a Russian land, not simply to conquer it, but actually to conduct a very modern, very frightening program of ethnic cleansing in which Ukrainian speakers will be turned into Russians and will be forced to become Russians, in which Poles who live in this region will be disenfranchised, and in which Jews will be forced out, dispossessed and forced out. And already, during the occupation of this region, 100,000 Jews are forcibly deported eastwards. And Przemysl's Jewish community, 17,000 people, are, during the occupation, first humiliated, gathered together, and then forced eastwards. They're forced out and exiled. And what we see here, of course, and I I take the story right up to 1948, is the beginnings of the much larger Nazi and Soviet projects to rearrange this area in their own ideological models for their own ideological ambitions. Clearly the Russian, at this point, as you say, the Russians were undertaking programs of ethnic cleansing, they were nationalistic, they were they were racist. How much worse were they in these regards than the Austro-Hungarian Empire? The Austro-Hungarian Empire, before the First World War, is one of the most open liberal states in Europe, especially the Austrian half of it. Um, as I've said, and it recognises 11 official languages. Its citizens have voting rights. Male citizens have universal suffrage, at least, again, in the Austrian part of the empire. It's divided into two parts, Austria and Hungary. And rights constitutionally, language rights, are meant to be respected, which is very, very different from the situation in Russia before the First World War. The Habsburg army does also do that to some degree, but it's got ingrained racism too. And the Habsburg army persecutes Ukrainian speakers who it sees as traitors in 1914. It blames them for its defeats and it conducts huge numbers of arrests, thousands of arrests and thousands of killings. No one quite knows how many killings were perpetrated against Ukrainians by the Habsburg army in 1914, early 1915, during this period of military crisis. Um, The lowest estimates are about 1,500, 1,500. The highest go up to 30,000. Very, very difficult, but it's significant. What's different between the Habsburg army and the Russian army, though, is that the Habsburg army is driven by blind panic, fear and prejudice. The Russian army, by contrast, actually is drawing up plans for the future, fundamentally change this land, to change it from a land which has historically been a crossroad of cultures, a crossroad where um, Eastern Christendom has met Western Christendom, a place of uh, very lively Jewish religious and cultural life, into a much more monolithic Russian land. And it's putting in plans, and that's why it's especially the Russian army, and of course especially as well with its anti-Semitism, its actions look forward to the even more lethal and brutal actions of the Soviets and even more so the Nazis in this region 20 years later. And I realise this this is not a core part of your book, but I wonder if you could just briefly explain what happens to this area of land for the remainder of the First World War, because the Russians don't actually hang on to it for very long. 
No, the fortress falls in March 1915. They managed to maintain control of it until June 1915. And at that point, it's liberated or, or, or at least retaken by the German army. Very, very interesting to read. I've got a lot of um, fantastic diary accounts and memoir accounts in this book. It's fantastic to read about how civilians in this occupation zone, in this very fought-over zone, saw the, the German army. Of course, the German army was incredibly brutal 20 years later, utterly barbarous. But in 1915, when the German army comes in, these Polish and Ukrainian peasants compare it very favourably to, uh, to the Russians and, and to their own Austro-Hungarian army. Both the Russians and the Austro-Hungarians are seen as murderous, uncivilised, they requisition, they don't pay cash, um, they're very dangerous and, and very unpredictable. The Germans, by contrast, in, in, in these memoirs are presented as civilised, they pay in cash, they're polite to one's daughter, and it, it's the Germans who enter the, the fortress and liberate it. And after this point in the First World War, the fortress doesn't play a big part. The, uh, the Eastern Front is pushed largely due to, due to German military activity, is pushed much further west. What's interesting, of course, is that, is that this isn't the last time, though, that the fortress is on a front line. Uh, in the Second World War, Chemisch again comes to be on the front line when the Germans invade Poland in September 1939. And then between 1939 and 1941, the Nazis and the Soviets draw their border right down the middle of the city. So there's this ghastly gash of concrete and, and, and barbed wire drawn right through the middle of the city. And this is, again, another reason why I thought Pshash is such a good subject to understand what went wrong in the 20th century, because at the start, it's a crossroad of cultures. Um, it goes through the First World War, which ignites this huge period of horrendous violence which lasts for decades until in 19, 1941 you actually have um, instead of being a crossroad of cultures a concrete monolithic border put there by two totalitarian regimes so Pshemish is on the front line in that sense for sure not 1915 to 1918 but in some ways ideologically right through this whole period and that becomes clear very starkly at the start of the second world war for a lot of our listeners, and certainly in Britain, we focus, when we think about the First World War, a lot on like Western Front battles like the Somme, Passchendaele, things like that. But should this story of this great siege, should that be up there really in terms of the major moments in the First World War that we need to think about and understand? Oh, without any question. Especially because, not even with the First World War, but actually with the whole of the 20th century. If we think about the horror that befell Europe in the 20th century, and we think about that, epicentre of that horror. It was East Central Europe. It was places like Poland and Ukraine and what are today the Baltic states. This was the place where most of the killing, where the genocide, where horrendous combat goes on in 1939 to 1945, and where also horrendous combat goes on in 1914 to 18. And for sure, in some ways, the Western Front determines the outcome of the First World War. But the Eastern Front is much, much more important than the West for the wider course of European history. It's much more important for poisoning continental Europe, for um, bringing about the rise of extremism, the rise of racial ideology, the rise of ethnic prejudices and modern programmes of reorganising and, and, and wiping out entire populations. 
So if we're going to understand both the First World War and that wider trajectory, the Eastern Front is critical. And of course, Shemish was right at the centre. And I presume in writing your book, you've you've visited the area. I wonder what, what it's like nowadays. How much does this story still matter to the inhabitants there? It matters hugely to the inhabitants, although the inhabitants, it's important to bear in mind, aren't the same as they were in 1914. So in 1914, Pshemish was crossroad of cultures. It was about 40% Polish speaking, about 30% Jewish, and about 20% Ukrainian, something like that, give or take. So it was a very, very multi-ethnic place, just like all of these cities in this region in the first half of the 20th century. Today, of course, it's pretty much 100% Polish speaking, that the population was, was changed, had huge turnover as a result of the Second World War and the ethnic cleansing that went on immediately after it. So the population is different, but it still identifies with this story without, without any doubt. And if you wander through this city, and of course this is how I end the book, if you wander through this city, the past of 1914, that safer past before all of this horror that we know happened in the 20th century took place still kind of seems graspable. The architecture of the city is is neo-Baroque, so very much like any other old Habsburg Central European Central European city. You can still see where the fortress command was. You can still see the old officers' mess um, where they had their parties and wined and dined. The old Habsburg administrative buildings there, the station still looks, the railway station still looks, still looks the same. But when you look harder, you realise that it's different. And not just because you don't hear Yiddish on the streets anymore, you don't hear Ukrainian on the streets anymore. Um, the old Jewish quarter is gone. That was, that was destroyed in 1941 along, of course, with, with the population. And if you travel out um, to the perimeter, to what was the old fortress perimeter where, the, where these 19th century forts lay, you can still see them. There's, you can still visit them and there's a huge amount to, um, to see there. But, of course, they're rubble. And for me, that very much, that very much kind of acts as a reminder of, of, of the, how the fate of this fortress epitomises what was to happen to the entire region in the decades after 1914. That was Alexander Watson. His book, The Fortress, is on sale now, published by Alan Lane. You can also read a feature by Alexander about The Fortress in our December issue, which is on sale now. For plenty more on the First World War, visit our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Monday when we'll be discussing a major new exhibition on the tomb of Tutankhamun. (laughs) 